there is a problem with the economic analysis of scarcity. We're talking about whether there is lots of stuff in the world. But what we're not talking about is human appetite and human desire. And the problem is that fallen human desire is limitless and unconstrained. The debt economy is almost designed to let insatiable desire loose. And most marketing and advertising is geared up to stimulate that. Hello and welcome to Faith at the Frontiers, a podcast that confronts challenges to the Christian faith with hope. We've arrived at our final episode on economics in which we interview Professor Paul Williams. Paul has a unique set of qualifications to talk about Christian economics because he's studied both economics and theology academically, and he's also worked as an economist in London for many years. So he's seen the question from many different angles that together give him penetrating insight into what is good and bad about current Western systems, capitalism, and the difference between capitalism and the free market. Paul draws our attention to forgotten aspects of economic theory, such as human desire and satisfaction, and the fundamental principles of how we decide on property ownership. I hope you enjoy this episode. Just to explain why Carmody is interested in this topic of economics, you, you became interested in it through a route of sort of climate theology and climate change. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I've always had a background interest in it. And I very nearly kind of went into the city as a younger person. When I finished Oxford, I approached various banks and consultancies and so on. So I have a sort of biographical connection with it, but I was really focused on bringing about change at the level of personal awareness and personal choice, which is reflective of the emphasis in Laudato Si on ecological conversion. And in particular, on showing Christian communities how a responsibility for the natural world was inherent in their faith in ways that they may not have noticed. And that occupied a huge amount of energy for those years. And then something happened which completely changed my approach to the whole issue. And it wasn't so much a single event, but it was a series of significant new insights, which made me start to think that the problem was not a problem at the level of individual agency, but a problem at the level of systemic influence. All of this really created in me a strong resistance to the sort of personal spirituality level narrative around addressing environmental change and made me much more interested in thinking about why we have the systems that we do have, what values do those systems represent and how can we change them? The background I'm bringing to these group of questions is first of all academic training in economics Secondly, in theology, I've also kind of experienced the sharp end, if you like, of working in the finance industry, in investment banking in particular, but also in public policy, economic development advice, both within the first world and the majority world um, contexts. But I think that I'm very happy to start by agreeing, really, with the sort of hypothesis that you've put forward, which is that when we think that questions of climate change, of economic inequality, social problems can be addressed by thinking solely in terms of the incentives structures for so-called autonomous individual choice, we are, in a way being deflected and blinded from the root of the problem more than uh, we are having the problem opened up for us. So there is, although there is truth in the possibility of individual agency, I believe, being meaningful, to only talk about that hides more than it reveals because actually uh, we are constrained in the option set that we have very significantly by the culture, the systems, the structures in which we are living and making these sorts of decisions. And, um, of course, the most important thing to say about those systems and structures is that they are themselves the product of decisions by individuals. Over time, 
cumulatively, but nonetheless, we as human beings have made these things that now shape our lives. By things, I mean the systems, the structures, the institutions. And of course, it's always complex to talk about these things because institutions and structures are and have been, they have the capacity for a great deal of good. And um, there's lots of good that we could point to, even in some of the institutions that we might want to be very critical of. I think that's where there's a lot of complexity in talking about these things. So sometimes people get very defensive about something because they're seeing perhaps certain good outcomes, but they're missing some of the really negative things that actually are currently going along with that, but don't necessarily have to be that way. So I do think that a systems or cultural way of thinking about the broadly economic, ecological, social problems of our age is absolutely vital if we're going to make if we're going to make any headway. One of the articles that you wrote a long time ago that I really appreciated was one where you say that the term capitalism actually covers two two distinct phenomena one being sort of just the the idea of the free market and the other being a more sort of systemic philosophy about how money works am i remembering this correctly well i i think Mm. that there's a lot of confusion around terms so i think very often we conflate the term capitalism the term the market economy or the free market and even the term economics, and we conflate them all into as if they're the same thing, yeah. and as, the, as if they denote something that's really the same. And I think this makes it very difficult to have a sensible conversation, because you end up in a very polarized situation when you can't separate these terms out. And so what, what I think is helpful is to talk about the market as a way of organizing um, exchange, yeah. which actually has pre-existed capitalism and indeed pre-existed feudalism you know it's been present in some form for as long as human civilization has existed so far as we're aware there's been some form of of uh, production and trade and consumption that's been going on capitalism is a kind of political ideology of the market and economics has typically functioned as the intellectual academic mainstream defense of the political ideology that we call capitalism but it need not be so if you see what i mean in other words we could talk about we could talk about market forms of organization without having to to have a political ideology that's identical to capitalism um, we could talk about economics certainly in ways that do not necessarily defend the political ideology of capitalism It's very interesting to me that you say that you use economics. Most people think of economics as a discipline, as a subject matter for inquiry, but you're using it to say it's actually, it's sort of is its goal is to defend capitalism and sort of geared up. Yeah, it's important to understand the the sort of uh, etiology of economics because it's emerged as a discipline in the 19th century, fighting its way free, as it would see it, of the troublesome ethical and moral strictures of the previous situation in which questions of how we organize the institutions of money and trade and property in a society is is an inherently moral endeavor whatever else it may be and so typically economics was not a separate discipline from moral philosophy or political economy which at least recognises the significance of power in the way in which economic processes take place. But what we did at the end of the 19th century with the publication, typically it's, you know, uh, Alfred Marshall's Principles of Economics in 1890, is to separate the study of economics from those moral issues, from issues of power, uh, issues of ought. Uh, And that was done very explicitly. And the motive for it was partly to ape the success of the physical sciences. So economics wanted to have a form of Newtonian physics in the social arena. And many of the the motivations and the modelling 
was deliberately sort of trying to copy that success in the social sphere, that through the power of reason and analysis and empirical observation, all of which, of course, are goods, we could actually see, design, model how society worked and optimise that mechanism. I see. And so mathematically, we didn't need to worry about the... um, the moral dimension, we simply had to optimise this mathematical model that actually described the way things worked. And that was the way to really get what we wanted out of economic activity. So that's very, very interesting. So basically, economics was born as an attempt to do for finance and markets what was already being done in the sciences in other words to sort of narrow the scope of inquiry to a very precise set of questions that exclude moral and ethical concerns yes except that like most narratives that we tell ourselves that one was also to some degree deceptive because or self-deceptive because actually what was brought in at the very same time was the marriage really of that empirical observation combined with mathematics and a version of utilitarianism because utilitarianism lent itself to the connection between human behavior and the need for mathematical modeling of market behavior this natural marriage between the supposedly empirical uh, the sort of newly empirical and, and, and purely quantitative economics of the 19th century with utilitarianism. This connection, which is so interesting, this is to do with the hedonic calculus, right? The idea that really ethics is a calculation to do with quantities of happiness of different numbers of people. Is that's that what right. you're getting at? Yeah, that's right. And so the price system provided the means of converting this Uh, happiness in the form of utility that we didn't have access to people's inner states but we did have access to their outward behavior if they're rational their outward choices will conform with their inner utility function and so in a in a market that prices those decisions we can start to put numbers on those utility functions and that was the sort of move that was being made because it enabled the mathematical modeling not only of particular markets, but of the economy as a whole. Mm. That's very, very helpful kind of potted history, Paul. Can you offer any remarks on what you see as the intersections with, with Christianity, both then and now? Obviously, utilitarianism, the utilitarianism of, of Bentham and Mill borrows heavily on Christian ethics in a certain form and the harm principle and so on. How, how do you see the, to put it in a provocative way, collusion of Christianity in setting up economics in this way? A. And B, how do you see, how would you offer a theological evaluation of this way of doing economics now? I I wouldn't accept the characterization of collusion, I don't think. And I think that the the history, the detailed history of that process is one in which the the Christian moralist, the Christian ethicist was pushed out. And but that's a complicated story for us to get into. But the, the best historian to read on that would be Anthony Waterman's accounts of the transition from the classical period uh, in economics to modern economics. Mm. But I think that what, what is important here is that what was a, you know, a, a, an exploration in the late 19th century has become instantiated institutionally in modern economic analysis, particularly in the post-war period, such that we are making very significant, and we have been making very significant public policy decisions based on the kind of analysis that Marshall, in a way, first hypothesized or brought together in a theoretical construct, we have now made into something that's quite well institutionalized. So when we look at cost-benefit analysis, in making decisions about how resources are allocated, we are explicitly using that kind of way of thinking to make very significant choices uh, often. And there are several substantial critiques of the role of utilitarianism in economic analysis. But 
an explicitly Christian one, which I think is the best one I've come across, is written by Donald Hay, former tutor in economics at Jesus College, Oxford, in his book, Economics Today, A Christian Critique. So I'd, I'd commend that to you. But maybe, you know, if I can, frame up how I would approach this question that, that you're grappling, as I understand it, that you're grappling with, which is how do we think Christianly about systems because we want to think Christianly about the problems we're experiencing. And I think that there are some, there are some tools in the economics toolkit which, which can be useful to us. And what I'm thinking of particularly here is something called constitutional economics, which is not the economics of the British or American constitution, but it is basically the constitution essentially establishes the rules of the political game. So constitutional economics is about how do you establish the rules of the economic game and um, what happens if you play with those rules. Now, one of the elements of those rules, which is absolutely vital at the very beginning, is really how do you allocate property rights? Yes. How do property rights get allocated? Right, Pro- Before, Property has been an important topic a a theme. In, on this podcast yeah. already. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and and, and when, when, econ- when economists talk about property rights, we don't just mean buildings or land. We mean literally everything that can be owned, anything at all. Yeah. Right? It could be an idea. It could be body parts. It could be a contract. Yeah. Um, okay. So how do property rights get allocated? That turns out to be quite significant, um, especially at the beginning, because the initial terms have a big impact on the outcomes when you uh, start to, to, to play the game. Yes. Now, you've got to ask yourself then, well, what is your goal in coming up with the rules, the constitutional rules of the economic game? What is the goal that you're trying to achieve? What kind of economy do you want? And I think that the, I was going to say the de facto, but actually it's now really quite explicit. It's become very explicit. Up until very recently, the goal has been to maximize economic output. And we've had election after election after election in, you know, country after country, particularly in the um, so-called developed West, where that is the thing that's put before the electorate, which party will best maximize the economic outcome and output of the society. And often that's tinged with, and by the way, put the most in your particular pocket, depending on which class of voter you are. (laughs) So this has been the the big appeal. The, The economy is there. Now, you could contrast that at a high level with, if that's a capitalist, quote, economy, you could contrast that with a socialist economy where the goal might be how can we make sure that whatever economic output there is is equally shared. Yeah. Uh, that would be a different mm. different goal, mm. right? Mm. So mm. how do we think Christianly about this? I take, you know, I start, and I'm happy to talk about this in more detail, but I, in answering these questions, for me, uh, the Bible is a vital place of unique revelation in understanding how I might approach a question like this. So from my perspective, the Bible is most interested not in that question, but in the question, what kind of society do we want? So what kind of economy do we want falls out of what kind of society do we want? Yeah, okay. So it starts at the political level and then the economics sort of comes in. Well, I would say the political level is also below the level of society. So Okay. Yeah. Is it a a fair gloss, Paul, to say... It's really about, I don't mean the biblical point, but this way of assessing economics is that economics always has ends. It always takes certain things as good. And that in the current arrangement, those goods, such as maximising economic output, simply are not terribly examined or contested. And that one thing we need to do is contest those goods that it takes are central. There's there's actually a, a much more powerful sleight of hand that goes on in modern economic thinking and indeed public discourse about it because the way in which an economist would answer that question, a neoclassical mainstream economist would answer that question, is that no, actually you can bring whatever goals you have for the economy or the society to bear 
economics or the market is not determining that, but rather you reveal that by how you behave and how you, how you act, how you vote, how you spend your money, how you invest. So there's no restriction on what vision you might have for society or an economy or a business or a neighborhood. You bring those values into this neutral environment, this morally neutral environment, in which everybody gets to have an equal vote. So this is really, I think, this deceit, I suspect, is one way of talking about your own personal biography, Carmody, of, of perhaps seeing the importance and value of individual agency, but then recognizing how actually there is not an equal playing field for individual agency. The playing field is tilted. It's tilted in certain directions, not only according to how much voting power you've got, how wealthy you are, but actually it's tilted for everyone in certain directions because the entire process assumes that individuals making choices is the most appropriate way to come to a decision about what kind of society we want and that the aggregation of that is going to lead to the best outcome. Mm. The, the analogy that I have often reached for is not a playing field, but architecture, that we live in an economic and indeed a political architecture. And within that architecture, there are only certain rooms you can, in fact, walk into. There are only doorways in certain places. In other words, all of our agency is constrained by factors, which, of course, we can't really see. And indeed, I think one of the points of this podcast series that Barney and I have been pursuing is trying to bring what's implicit into explicit view, right? So this economic architecture... Trying to bring out what's assumed, which is exactly what you're talking about, that the the various things are assumed in the question of economics. So there's there's Um, a lot that's not being exposed to scrutiny in that way of thinking. So I, I, I think that what I find powerful, really, in the biblical view is that you have a social... You have a vision for society which emphasizes well, the, the Hebrew word shalom, but essentially relational flourishing, which underneath that then requires certain kind of economy, an economy that will support relationships and community, will function as a kind of glue for relationships and community, rather than a solvent, rather than dividing um, relationships and community. So if that's your goal, then what are the constitutional rules of the game that you might come up with? And we find some of these in the Old Testament, where we've got several chunks of the Old Testament, particularly uh, Leviticus chapter 26, for example, which talk about what economists would refer to as factors of production. And really what these passages, and others like them, Deuteronomy 15, are doing is they are creating the rules of property right allocations for the main factors of production, um, which in that time, that cultural context, were what's emphasised is land, labour and capital. And And it's very interesting to do a compare and contrast between the way in which that approach allocates property rights in pursuit of a particular social vision and the approach that we take to allocating property rights and the kind of social outcome that we end up with. So I think, I think that this, to me, is very, very instructive. Mm. Do you think that that vision... Well, it's, first of all, I think, very important from the point of view of connecting this conversation with previous conversations. It's very important to notice that, in your view, Paul, the Bible does have a distinct view about what kind of system our economic system should be. We've had some interlocutors on, on, on the programme who really want to resist the idea that, 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 that there should be any structural attempt to structurally influence our economic systems. Yeah, that the Bible doesn't determine any particular economic system, yeah. Right, and indeed that that the only really basic, and you've mentioned this already, Paul, the only really basic datum in the sense of the only really basic given is the given of a right to private property, which which you can dispose of as you wish. And some of our interlocutors have invoked 
a kind of biblical vision as a backup for that. And you seem to be saying something which I recognise much more as what, for me, I, I received through Catholic social teaching, which is that the Bible actually has quite a definite... It, it offers definite and positive content at the systemic level for, yes. in the sense of offering a vision of how a human beings should live together and what is and isn't an acceptable way of doing that, specifically in regard to material assets and immaterial assets, as in things that give one person an advantage over another person, um, are actually of deep concern to the Bible, the way in which we dispose of them. I, th I think that, to me, it's clear that the Bible is very concerned about structure, not just individual behaviour. You know, if you think about one of the oldest, well, probably, I think it's the first, perhaps not the first command, but it's the first institution in the Bible and the first institution of creation, which is the Sabbath. That is a structure. It's a structuring of human society to say that, that we will have a day a week in which economic activity has to cease and the celebration of social being and creation itself is the centre. That is a structure. I, I, I have to say, I did a Bible study on the Sabbath once because I had to preach a sermon on it. And I, and I was surprised to notice how rarely the Sabbath is actually mentioned throughout the Old Testament compared with a lot of other... Th I thought it was going to be mentioned much more often, but the times that it was mentioned, it almost always seemed to be that people were desperate to break the Sabbath law because they wanted to work. Yes. I found that a bit hard to understand uh, uh, at the time, but what it seems to resonate with what you're saying, that actually the Sabbath was instituted to hold back economic activity that would otherwise go into overdrive and go out of control. There's a lot we could say about that because, of course, the in both Old and New Testaments, the Sabbath precedes human work. The Sabbath is the first day of the week, theologically. It isn't the last day of the week. And the whole narrative of human work and the empire, if you like, of human construction or architecture, your, your word, is seen particularly in the Old Testament with a few flashes of redemption as the hubris of, of mankind, essentially. The refusal to trust the goodness of God and the provision of God and to rely only on my work to generate my security, my reputation, my status. So the Sabbath is a very powerful structure because it's, it's countering that instinct at a very basic level. And it's no wonder that we resist it. We fight it in every way we can, um, whether inside or outside the Christian community. We, we struggle with that structure. Can I ask you, in that connection, um, Paul, that's, that's, that's very helpful, and we haven't discussed the Sabbath, which is a pity, because this is such a fundamental way of structuring economic life by, by kind of limiting its, um, its reach somehow, by preserving a space of gratuity as the primary space in creation and in human society. But one of the things that's always intrigued me about that history of, of modern economics that you walked us through earlier is the influence of Thomas Malthus, the philosopher who, who came up with this theory about a limit, a natural limit to human population and used this to kind of predict the rise and fall of societies. And as a result of the influence of Malthus, to put it very simply, modern economics has often taken scarcity to be the fundamental given, the fundamental parameter in which um, we experience resource use, in which we allocate resource use. There's a kind of hermeneutic of scarcity at the root of modern economics. And in fact, one popular definition of economics even takes scarcity as defining of, of, of economic discipline. Is it true, in your opinion, that because of the priority of the Sabbath as the first day of the week and the crown of, of creation, that the biblical um, vision is a hermeneutic of abundance, and which is what some um, interpreters say, that the, 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 the biblical... A picture of creation is a hermeneutic of abundance and that this abundance should be the sort of we should default in our understanding that there is enough not that there isn't enough in order that our relations with each other are not competitive so what would you think about that a and b what does it mean to talk about that or to kind of try to stand by that biblical vision in the world as it is right now where there is of course really not uh, an experience of abundance for the vast majority of people 
Well, this connects with our previous conversation about Sabbath, but um, I, I, I agree and disagree at the same time, I suppose, with the sort of theology of abundance idea. And I, the part where I disagree is because there's a, there's a bit of a misunderstanding about what economists mean when they use the word scarcity. But it's also true that there is a problem with the economic analysis of scarcity. Now, what I want you to notice so that we don't get bogged down in too much technicalities here is that in both cases, whether we're talking in these terms about scarcity or abundance, we're talking about whether there is lots of stuff in the world. But what we're not talking about is human appetite and human desire. But to have the... Um, the analysis complete. We need to be talking about human desire. And the problem is that fallen human desire is limitless and unconstrained. So, you know, a, a theological reading or an economic theological reading of the feeding of the 5,000 is a very interesting thing to do in this regard because you will find that you have, on the one hand, scarcity. You then have scarcity turning to abundance through the miracle of Jesus, but you have consumption named with a very important word, enough. Everyone had enough. The word enough is not something that we typically understand as central to our economic vocabulary. It's very interesting. So you cannot talk about scarcity or abundance without talking about demand as economists would call it, desire. And desire, after the fall, has been deeply distorted, disoriented, and dysfunctional. And, and the reason this connects with the Sabbath is that one of the things the Sabbath does is check our desire and help us reorient our desire to the proper ends. If our desires are misorientated, they will pursue ends that will lead us into destructive places. And we will become truly competitive with the rest of the created order, whether that's other people or other species. So that brings in the whole issue of greed, which I find my more right-wing capitalist friends are very reluctant to discuss greed or to name it as a potential problem in society today. Greed is so fundamental to the way clearly those people have never worked in financial markets the financial <laughs> markets are absolutely dominated driven by fear and greed and anyone who's worked as i have you know i've worked as a trader for a while anyone who works in those markets will tell you straight away that that's absolutely what drives behavior in those markets Mm. Okay, that's Could I add very, to that? very That's very, it's very helpful to have that, you know, front and center. And that's quite a, that's quite a strong statement for that these markets are driven by fear and greed. It reminds me of, I can never remember who said it, some familiar Christian thinker said, if there was a serious outbreak of love in the world, the stock markets would all crash, which makes you wonder how we can possibly endorse the current system. But anyway, that, that's to one side. I just wanted to, to make a note earlier, which I thought was very significant, Paul, you mentioned status. It seems particularly important not to have an innocent, a too innocent or, or simplistic understanding of greed in our current context. That in many cases, yes. people don't want more money because they literally want, I don't know, to buy more caviar. You know, it's not, it's not necessarily material greed, particularly in the global north, that is the real greed. The real greed is a status greed and money is attached to that. But of course, there are many, many other kinds of... Um, accessories to agreed for status which also drive these destructive societal patterns right so that, that that critique that is based on being able to see greed for what it is needs to be quite sensitive to the fact that this isn't just about people wanting to have more material things it's about them wanting to have more status and having an endless appetite for increased status in the eyes of others well the thing is that so economists um talk about positional goods so these are goods, and by goods, economists mean really anything you can acquire. So it might be a service. Um, but positional goods are things that give you status, essentially, because of the position they, that you... So, for example, luxury cars, you know, are a positional good. They signify something of your status. Having the luxury flats that, that um, have, have the best view of the River Thames, that's a positional good. 
land and property often functions like this. But also things can be very um, weird. I mean, you, you can have fashions that wax and wane over what counts as a positional good. You know, and it can happen in all kinds of subcultures. You've got to have a certain kind of pair of trainers at school to be cool. But then that changes. And, of course, if you can't afford to buy them, if you're the kid whose parents can't keep buying new pairs of trainers every month, you are never cool. So, I mean, that's a very small-scale example of positional goods that are purchased not simply for the, their utility, but actually for the status they afford. And you probably would be saying that, that the financial markets make use of things like the need to be to need to get these trainers to be cool in order to sell many more trainers. Well, that's that's more to do with the marketing industry of consumer goods yeah. organisations rather than the financial market. Well, Paul, what do you think that the Bible has to say in specifically about about this, about positional goods, about the goods that are perhaps brought on the back of material things but aren't identical with material things but which we can still be greedy for? Maybe with well, more fundament often greedy fun for. Fundamentally... It's a critique, isn't it, of a kind of desire that's wrongly oriented. It's not oriented towards the right end. Because that's not an end that's going to lead to human flourishing, the flourishing of your community, or the flourishing of your own family. It's a very narrow, possibly it's the flourishing of your family at the expense of others. You know, it might be a positional good that works for your family. But it's necessarily a pursuit of something at the expense of another and that cannot be sustained can it th by any kind of biblical ethics as because, being because status is always relative it's always relative to other people is that why essentially yes um when you're trying to acquire it that was the question right yeah. so it's not to say that there's no such thing as an appropriate status that can be that we might confer on others of honor perhaps is a better word uh, it's not saying that we shouldn't honour one another, but remember that in Scripture, you know, the onus is on the those who already have honour, the high-born, the wealthy, etc., to actually deliberately give honour and dignity to those who do not have it in any particular society. That's the New Testament emphasis, but the witness of the Bible as a whole is that you're not trying to design a society in which you have elites and downtrodden. You're actually trying, you're not trying to get rid of all diversity either. But you, you know, so, so you know, the, uh, the institutions of the Old Testament, the Jubilee laws, uh, Levitical system, didn't try to completely equalize exactly everybody's economic wealth but there was plenty of room for opportunity entrepreneurialism but they they did um, put certain checks in mainly by making decisions like I say uh, these are constitutional rules about what when is it appropriate for something to be tradable and when is it not appropriate for it to be tradable not everything should be bought or sold. We, we, we touched briefly on that in a former episode where um, a Muslim economist told us about the ban on lending at interest. Yes, the, which, in, yeah. in the Quran, yeah. Yeah, well, he, he actually said that it was common to all three Abrahamic traditions that yes. Christianity originally had banned interest as well. That's correct. For most of Christian and, history, we've done the same thing. And yeah. We stopped doing it around about 15... 70 something like that okay that's very interesting uh, paul one of the one of the one of the barney said we haven't been been having an echo chamber in this podcast which is really true we've 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 deliberately sought to have perspectives represented that perhaps barney and i don't find it easier to relate to and indeed that wouldn't find it easy to relate to each other but there's a perspective that we haven't had um sadly on the podcast which is to kind of crassly caricature the sort of left-wing or socialist Christian critique of let's call it capitalism, even though we know that's complex, right? That wants that that wants to and is aiming for total system change. So I've worked with quite a lot of campaigning organisations, often environmental, who are, who are calling for and 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 working for what they call a revolution, right? A total system change, often with um, well the kind of rhetoric of overturning the system, 
Right. So you're, you've just outlined a very um, convincing, if you like, diagnosis of the ills of our current system and a, and a compelling alternative vision that's offered by the, the, the Bible. Well, in practice, if, if a person is a, is a Christian out there thinking, well, that sounds very convincing, what am I supposed to do about that? Are you in the game of system change? Or what, what, what are you advocating for? Well, in, I mean, I, I think everybody's in the game of system change at some level. I mean, perhaps sharpen the question, are you in the game of system total, total revolution, I guess? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know everyone's. I think most people aren't in the game of system change. Everybody who's benefiting from the system is very happy it is, as it is. But there are people who well, not only want those to, who if you like, make minor adjustments to our system. So this may be people who want more regulation, let's say, but within the same broad economic structures. But then there are people who I work with who want the entire system to come down and a totally new way of doing things to be erected in its place. So I'm wondering where, what, what degree of change is required in your view? We do, we do need significant change. But we've also got to think about the transition, if you like, from where we are now to where we want to be. I don't really see... I, I'm extremely suspicious of revolutionary rhetoric about this because, by and large, the history of that sort of political revolutionary approach to changing uh, wrongs in a system, however well-intentioned, have pretty much universally led to very significant bloodshed so I, I, um, I wouldn't support that at all. Mm -hmm. I As don't I say to some of my activist friends, revolutions tend to eat their own children. Yeah, I, I don't see that as a, as a sort of a kingdom-oriented approach to things. I, I do think, um, I'll say a couple of things. I think that, first of all, what I have been encouraging people, you know, including my students for a long time, is who ask this kind of question is that we need to bring about change by operating on a number of fronts at the same time. One is the kind of conversation we're having now because the more that there is an awakening of, a, of an awareness that this is a moral <coughs> dimension of life that cannot be left to technocrats, that needs a serious conversation about what kind of economy and what kind of society we want to have together, we need to be having that conversation and we need to raise the awareness that that's the conversation that we need to have. Uh, that's one thing. It's because I see it as a consciousness thing. Uh, I think many people are just not conscious of the false choice that they're given at every election, which is really uh, no choice at all because there's no option that changes the system fundamentally. It's just tinkering. So that's one thing. I think, secondly, there is creating alternative cultural goods. And this is one thing that we're typically very bad at in uh, the Christian community, but also, I, I would say, in social criti criticism in general. It's much easier to criticise than it is to do something constructive. So many, many students are sent down the road of how to innovate within the system. What are the sorts of things that we can do? A lot of that is to do in, is in the realm of social enterprise, the B Corp movement, but it blends with entrepreneurialism that is thinking about systems, how they function at the local level that could take place in a smaller community. So I think those sorts of things are creating cultural goods is very important. But I think that... You know, when it comes to the when it comes to the systemic change, I think you know in your narrative comedy you talked about seeing how the systems are really important. Coming to that awareness, beginning to see that economics is very important for the systems that we uh, live within. But what I would say is that go further in than that. Actually, the financial system is right at the centre of the problem. And, and in particular, and it's, and it's, it's unfortunately, it's the, the evil is very difficult to see or understand. But in the way in which money is defined and used, this is one of the core places of real evil, actually, that underpins the foundations of our system. But That's quite strong. Can, can, strong can, can, can you talk us through how, how that is? Well, I, I think... 
people have understood for a long time that money is a, is, is a, it's a very useful invention. It creates a lot of good in itself, but it usually aligns in some way with power. Um, because we have to agree on what money, what we're going to use as money. Money is a means of exchange, uh, store of value, um, all of these qualities that money has. We have to agree what it's going to be. And, you know, you've probably heard the classic stories that economists tell about, you know, societies that use particular shells as money to trade with. Um, and obviously we've evolved a particular system. You know, you can have a barter economy. Money is a, a huge invention in that kind of situation. Yes, you don't need money for economic systems. You don't yeah. need it, but it, it certainly enhances your ability to trade. Enormously helpful. Very, yeah. very, very. It's a great invention at, at one level. But it is connected always with power. And what you also, what is also important, and this has always, you know, until very recently been the case, is that money, whatever unit of money we've had, it's in some way being connected with the real economy, what economists call the real economy. Or you could say creation, a shell, silver, gold, right? Now, the minute you detach it from that, you are at real risk. So what we did was we detached a physical thing, and there are problems with any physical thing that you choose, so let me just acknowledge that um, for any monetary economists listening. Um, <laughs> but when you when you go to paper money, you start to invest a lot more power into the issuer of that paper money. And nowadays, that's almost always governments or governments at arm's length, right? If you think yeah. about independent central banks. So the way that economists have tried to make sure that the paper money stays anchored in the actual physical world from which all of our economic exchange ultimately comes has been by having measures of value and we could say inflation or prices that are connected with real goods and services that are produced. We have created a system where we now create money that really has no connection whatsoever to the ecology in which economic activity takes place. And that means that it's far more in the hands of the powerful who get to determine who has like where the money comes from and what counts as money. Yeah. Is that am I understanding you right? Yeah. Well, if if it were possible to send a rocket ship to the moon and it so happened that there was a well there was a stash of uh, of currency on the moon um, that nobody had ever known about or accessed and somebody found it, then that someone would, of course, immediately become very wealthy because yeah. they would have, when they came back in their rocket, they would command purchasing power and the cost of that purchasing power would be the cost of the rocket trip there and back, right? Yeah. Now, um, well, that's comparable to the things that actually happened with the gold rush and that kind of yes, thing. Yes, right? yes, yeah. that's right. But let, but let's assume that the the gap between the cost of getting that money and the money itself is vast. So the cost of creating debt-based money electronically yeah. is negligible, but the quantity of spending power that's created through that mechanism is vast. Now, if that, so there are all kinds of problems with that mechanism, but the one that we have inherited particularly, this, is, this has been a feature of the really just the last 50 years or so, is the divorce at certain points, and then we've kind of corrected a bit and then we've let go, but the divorce of the creation of that debt money from the actual ecological world. Do so you mean I, ecological in the in the usual and traditional sense, Paul, or in a kind of extended metaphor? Uh, I, I I really mean that that by and large. You mean the literal we, natural environment. Yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, in yeah, other words, that if there is a connection between our monetary system and the natural world, however complex, such that we don't have more spending power in play than we have goods and services available, 
at prevailing prices, then we're kind of okay. But if, if those connections are lost, and if we can create huge amounts of spending power without any economic productive activity, what we're actually doing, obviously, is we create lots of inflation, but we're, we, the power, the spending power, goes into, A, the hands of the elites who get hold of it first. But what's actually worse than that for the, I mean, that's bad enough. So it's, it's, um, it devalues the value of everybody else's money. That's what inflation is. Inflation is an evil. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. It also gives a lot more power to the elites who get hold of that spending power first. And the people who tend to, to suffer the most uh, will be the people who get hold of it last, which is typically the poor, the people who haven't got any credit ratings, etc. But worse still, if that volume of spending power exceeds the productive output, then what you're doing is you're borrowing from the future of the planet's productive capacity. You've actually created a debt to the planet. And we've created a system which now requires cumulative growth in excess of our ability to actually, well, not necessarily our ability, but our actual productive output. In other words, the property, the, the, the property rights have really gone very haywire. So, so, so that, that would be where I would want to target change, policy change, because it would have the biggest impact at the level of the system. And there and by, are by there you mean money. Yes, the way that money and the financial system intersects with the rest of the economy. In in other words, I'm seeing that not the only thing, but a core part of our problem is the financialization of our economy and society. Now that in itself isn't going to solve all our problems because it's not going to change our insatiable appetites for more all the time. This is the other thing that no amount of system change from your left-wing friends will alter the runaway demand for more of our populations, including ourselves. And unless we're willing to stop consumption and say enough and be content, we aren't going to solve this problem no matter what system we have. That's not to say that there aren't significant injustices in the system that should be changed anyway. But don't, don't imagine that you could have the perfectly just system and you'll get rid of that kind of insatiable human desire. But you do want to have a system that puts the right checks on it. And unfortunately, the debt economy is almost designed to let insatiable desire loose. And most marketing and advertising is geared up to stimulate that. There's something about that growth which is cancerous, isn't it? Yeah. It's growth at the expense of the, of the body. It, it, it's GDP growth or monetary growth at the expense of the human society and indeed the natural environment. So there's a kind of cancerous nature. So I wouldn't want to get rid of, I, I, I am not one of these people who want, I'm, uh, you know, there's a lot about free exchange of goods and services and a limited form of private property that I would want to, I don't agree with absolute private property, by the way, I don't think the Bible supports that. I wouldn't want to get rid of that, but I definitely, there are injustices built into the way we are operating our market economy at the moment, which which we need to become aware of, we need to talk about, and which we can change. And I would be starting in, yeah. you know, those two areas are our desires and the use of money, debt, uh, and and finance, how that interconnects with the production of goods and services. So, j- just one other thing I wanted to say. It's interesting the way you've 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 wound up there, Paul, as a kind of balance between uh, a sort of more balanced version than the one that I've been working with. Because in that final, in this kind of two pronged account of where we need to apply pressure for change, one of which is at the system level, not system overturn, but system change from within. Right. So focusing on money and its embeddedness or not in our ecological systems yeah. um, and the real economy. 
But then you've also mentioned desire and the role of desire and the impossibility of fixing the problem of human desire with just external change, just yeah. external system change. It reminds me of a passage, well-known passage in the famous book by then Joseph Ratzinger, um, Introduction to Christian Theology. Sorry. Yes, Introduction to Christianity. There we go. Uh, where yeah. he writes about how there's no such thing as overall moral progress in the sense that every human being comes into the world with essentially the same task and every generation has to start again with that and we can't take that away from them that's the burden mm. of every of every person to overcome desire directed to the wrong ends yeah. and you saying that made me reflect on that we can't circumvent that with just better system design but i do think we have underestimated in the global north for various reasons both philosophical and material that the way in which you shape desire is always communal. Yes. It's never something that you just do privately inside your head, that you wake up in the morning and you say, today I'm going to be a person who doesn't desire wrong things, because that doesn't go anywhere. Or doesn't desire too They're much actually of things. Healthy. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So that really the, the solution, so to speak, in that domain as well, in the domain of desire, is also communal. It's also about shaping practices, shared practices of life, that form people in having true desires or having life-giving desires, shall we say, yes. that we don't ever do that by ourselves. And there's something about, and this is something we also haven't talked about on the podcast, Barney, but there's something about what we're referring to as capitalism, that it is itself a communal practice of forming desires in the wrong way. And there's been far too much innocence about that. There's been far too much, you know, just as you were saying, Paul, there's been far too much of this sense that well, if you want to buy the fill-in-the-blank, then you buy it. It's totally up to you. But it isn't up to you because your desires are being totally shaped by the environment that you're living in. One of the places in which we need to apply pressure, um, insofar as we're talking about change, social change, is creating different cultures of desire. And that's quite a difficult thing to do, A. And B, it's absolutely not something you do by, by quote, rationally convincing individuals. It's something you do by creating compelling communities of practice that people want to be part of. Uh, Which is obviously what where churches could play a role. Yeah, I mean that's really what church is, isn't it? Is is a community yeah. that's seeking to cultivate uh, different desires, you know? And we have practices exactly. like the Eucharist, don't we? That are shaped around receiving and celebrating gifts um, that are physical, um, that are sustaining. You know, the, you're right. You, what you say about capitalism is absolutely right. That it, it, it is a a culture of desire. William Kavanagh has written on this uh, very eloquently. I was about to mention um, that, being consumed. Yes, um, but uh, and, and other pieces of his. But, you know, my point would be this, that many of the defenders of capitalism as a political ideology will talk about the importance of individual freedom. I believe in the importance of individual freedom, of individual agency, not individualism. But my, I think it's important to understand that if we are not willing to exercise restraint as individuals to have a moral conscience as individuals formed in community then the consequences are that our society will become it will it will it will manifest the kind of outcomes more and more that we are beginning to see right now both in terms of social inequality but also ecological destruction and the only conscience we have left really is in the form of the state and the state is then starts to act as the conscience and takes away the freedom of the individual so the idea that you can have more market and less government is utterly false and this i hear this repeated so often that you know in left right discussions we have never had a situation where we've consistently had more market instead of more government, you know, less government. What we always get is more market and more government. So actually our freedom is, is progressively diminishing the more we give way to our selfish desires. And this is the reality that no amount of system change is going to get rid of. Yeah. Wow. That's hard-hitting. And begs us, uh, begs us to embark next on uh, theological anthropology, Bonnie. Uh, um. Yes, <laughs> although don't call it that. That's not that's not a sexy title. Yeah. No, really. <laughs> really there, there's a there's a great um, article yeah. that um, speaks into anthropology and desire in economics, 
by two academic economists, Mark Casson and Peter Buckley. I will send you the reference. I can't quite remember it exactly um, uh, for, oh, yeah, your, for your listeners. It might be something like the imperialism of economics or something like that, or economics as a social... Right. But I will send you the reference. Um, oh, thanks, Paul. That'd be, that'd be awesome. This has been amazingly rich, Paul. Really, really rich. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so thank much you for, for the questions. Us. I Absolutely haven't talked thought. about this stuff for ages and I've really enjoyed myself, so thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Faith at the Frontiers, a podcast produced in collaboration with The Tablet. If you liked this episode, then do subscribe to hear more like it in the future. For now, goodbye. Goodbye.